0: This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford. Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short
1: Briefings. Hello and a very big welcome to this very special Sissure podcast, where we're going to set aside for a while any talk of financial markets and focus instead on something that will capture the imagination of so many of us this week, the return of top flight English football. And we have a very special guest to help us do that in the shape of Jim White, who has been covering football on and off the pitch for many years at The Telegraph. Welcome, Jim. Hello, Richard. And Jim and I, full disclosure, are both passionate, lifelong Manchester United fans. And before you get going about, you know, you've probably come from Surrey, not true. We were both (laughs) born and bred in Manchester, in fact, went to the same school. And joining Jim and myself are two of my CityWire colleagues who right now represent completely different, contrasting tales of football fortune. First up is Angus Foote, whose fortune it was to be born on the edge of East London and thus find his life beholden, for better or worse. To those fortunes of West Ham United, and with us today also is Charles Warmsley, who is a Liverpool fan. So, before the rest hi of us, <laughs> hi, Charles. So, before the rest of us, grit our teeth and acknowledge the inevitable. Let me ask Charles this question: Where were you born?
2: I was born in Hemel Hempstead, which is quite away from Liverpool. Um, so, yes, I am one of those fans. Uh, in my defence, I do go to every home game now, so I feel like, I, uh, I feel like I've earned my place to uh, enjoy the celebration that hopefully will come in
1: the next few weeks. Fair enough. Well, we'll get on to footballing matters in a second uh, on the pitch, but I think we've got to start today with the news of the extraordinary campaign of Marcus Rashford to pressure the government into retaining free school meals over the summer. And lo and behold, he's won. Only about an hour ago, the government did a complete U-turn and bowed to the inevitable. So those school meals, those free meals will carry on through the summer. Uh, So, Jim, let's start with you. What does this tell us about the power of role models to do good? And in particular, how young footballers, uh, professional footballers, really derided at the start of this uh, pandemic about should they take wage cuts and do more? But this is an amazingly positive use of their power. So... uh, Tell us about
3: it. It, It's come back to haunt Matt Hancock, who said at the start of the pandemic, you know, footballers really need to get their act together and need to take a pay cut. uh, And indeed, um, you know, From Gareth Southgate, who has uh, taken a a 30% pay cut uh, to Marcus Rashford, um, to Harry Kane, um, to uh, across football, uh, clubs have been helping with... Uh, social issues around them. There's been a lot of uh, food banks delivering and so on. And this has really uh, come back to shoot them in the foot, uh, I think, in government. And now they're basically, uh, their policy is being dictated by uh, what is decided by 22-year-old centre-forwards from Manchester United. So this is an interesting uh, about turn. Jamie Carragher wrote a really good column in The Telegraph uh, over the weekend where he basically uh, did a mea culpa. uh, He said he fell into the trap of the classic old-school footballer where he said about... I think it was after England lost to uh, Iceland in 2016. He said, well, the trouble with today's uh, generation is they're all spoiled. They don't know what they're doing. They're all weak. They're pathetic. Uh, I was the last of the old school. Um, And he did a complete mea culpa in the paper and said, actually, this generation of young players are far more rounded. They're far more alert to political soundings, uh, they're far more adventurous uh, than we ever were. And I I think that that COVID has actually demonstrated that, that uh, players are much more attuned to their community and to their environment uh, than they have been for years. And what's changed again is that they have, through social media, this incredible platform in order to deliver uh, good things. And and Rashford is, is absolutely a role model, um, somebody who has always been focused, always been determined, come from very, very humble background. And he is somebody that the world wants to listen to. It's a really, really fascinating change for footballers, I think, who have long been derided as people only interested in the money.
1: Right, and, we, and we, even before this, we, uh, Rashford was doing his, his meals campaign. I think he's feeding th- helped to feed 3 million people, which is just extraordinary. And we had Raheem Sterling sp- being very yeah. uh, prominent, speaking out on, on racism. So it's pretty widespread. I mean, Charles?
2: You also had um, Sancho in the uh, Bundesliga the other week sort of making a point with, and I think that's now transferred to other teams in in Germany, sort of standing with him on the whole racism issue at the moment.
1: Yeah, and we've got, you know, we've come from this thing where even the slightest political message on a T-shirt would raise hackles. And now we have pictures of... Yeah, you know, that very moving picture of the Liverpool players taking a knee yeah. before training, which was extraordinary. Angus,
0: yeah, I'd be interested to know what you think about the idea that there are these kind of seminal moments. I mean, Jim, you, you said, I think you said something about footballers—the way they. This could be the moment which the way they are perceived changes, and I, I'm I'm kind of an of an age, and I can remember football in the 1970s, and you you think back at the things that changed along the way, and so you know, like 1990, where suddenly. Because they put they used opera for the, the World Cup theme tune. And it was suddenly, they suddenly somehow pulled off this trick of glamorizing football. And then you know, it went from being this kind of dirty, violent game to something that was a lot more attractive. And then that then had longer term implications. And I just wonder whether this is one of those moments where you know, as you say, football was seen as only concerned about money. You know, nobody would ever ask a footballer about politics, you only ever asked about about football. And, 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 do we really, does it all tip and, and change and, and, and things will be different going forward?
3: One a... of the things that's ha- happened in lockdown is there's been this nostalgia. Uh, we've, we've been watching reruns of Euro 96. We've been watching the England World Cup win in 66. '90s has been there. I watched the uh, uh, Euro 96 uh, reruns. And what was fascinating about that was before the tournament started, footballers were regarded as the most dissolute bunch of people you know there was the whole um, dentist chair chair. yeah (laughs) and and the flight back from Hong Kong etc etc and then England started to do quite well and that whole thing changed and Gaza used his celebration for his goal against Scotland uh, to make a kind of visual play on the dentist chair and everything changed there and we, we, we had a sudden switch. What was different then was actually the behaviour of the players hadn't changed that much. They were still a pretty dissolute bunch who liked to drink. I think the current guys are different. I mean, they're brought up differently. They don't drink for a start. Um, you, you, you also find that they're much more astute about s- communicating with people, they're much more astute about their image and how it is used. And even in the last, I think COVID has changed it, because even in the last year, you know, you would look, let's take an example of, of Manchester United, it would have two big celebrity players in there, in Paul Popper and Jesse Lingard, and a lot of what they did with their platform was commercial. It was to sell more tracksuits or to sell more haircuts or whatever it was they were selling. What has changed? Uh, And Charles pointed out Jaden Sancho and, and Jordan Henderson and Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane. What's changed is they're looking for kind of wider social good. And that is a really new development. What I think will be interesting is whether there's a backlash against that. And on Saturday, Marcus Rashford's, or oh, Friday night when United play Spurs, Mar- Marcus Rashford misses a sitter. And suddenly everyone's going, Well, you should be concentrating on your football, mate.
0: <laughs> this podcast is in association with Bailey Gifford. Find out more about their Ranger funds and investment trusts at www.baileygifford.com.
1: Well, that's a nice segue because. Uh, that we've got two games on Wednesday night and then United-Spurs on Friday night. So, Jim, just to come back to you, you know, uh, had this been a normal season, nine games to go, we would have had a very cogent discussion about, well, this could happen, that could happen, West Ham could stay up, could United beat Chelsea? And it's all sort of fairly predictable. You know, there will be injuries at certain clubs and and a difficult run-in. Now, we've we've got nine games, sure, but empty stadiums, players who haven't played in anger for three months. I mean, how do you try and sort of put your pundits hat on and predict how the season might play out?
3: I don't know why you're asking me, uh, Richard. <laughs> I'm obviously useless at predicting things <laughs> at the best of times. But in these circumstances, no home advantage. That's a, that's a critical thing. There would have been a team that made a burst from uh, the bottom, uh, broke away on the back of their home record. The fans would have got behind them. There'd have been a momentum. Look okay, at you here, happening. Angus. It's, it's like pre-season. West Ham's home the, record is everybody's terrible. Everybody's fit. <laughs> so maybe they're, they're going to have an advantage there. But uh, <laughs> it's like pre-season. Everybody's fit. you know. Uh, Tottenham, for instance. Uh, Jose Mourinho had his excuse book uh, ready and open, you know, he had no son, he had no cane. What did he expect? What did people expect of him? Um, Manchester United have got uh, Rashford back and Pogba, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, we might discuss. But you know, everyone is back to speed, so you can't even see where they are. And, and I think the, the other thing is, is momentum how much does momentum play uh, in, a, in, in a season? If you're on a good run and then it suddenly stops, United hadn't lost for 11 games. Well, they're now starting again. Can you maintain momentum? How do you keep that going? It's it's made of a level playing field. And I think the only thing we can safely say about this season is that Liverpool will be the champions. That is literally the only thing we can safely say. I think this has thrown everything else up for grabs in a way that it probably wouldn't have done if we'd have carried on as normal.
1: So, Charles, I mean, yeah, they're going to be champions. Teeth gritted. But... You know, empty stadium, no bus ride. It's not really a title, is it?
2: Well, it's still a title. I think it's uh, it's as much as a title as we're going to make it. And I think we're going to make it a big one, given it's the first one for 30 years. But yeah, I mean, obviously there is a sense of disappointment. Um, you know, we all know this has to happen and it's for, for public health reasons or take much priority over us having a fun time and celebrating this. But, you know, there was, I think we, cause it was two games away. <laughs> there was just this sort of hope among the supporters that, yeah, if we can just get, to the end of March without these measures coming in We could celebrate the title In, in the stadium against Crystal Palace um, Sadly that won't happen um, And yeah And I think we all sort of feel Like we're missing out a bit um, People always talk about Manchester United ending their drought And the, the scenes that day in, um, in Old Trafford I think um, Well it, the game In Manchester at least um, And we're not going to have that But I think at this stage, we'll we'll definitely take it and celebrate as much as we can, whether that's Zoom calls with all the people we go to games with or watch games with, whether that's, um, you know, maybe heading down to the park the day after for a couple of beers, uh, socially distance, of course. Um, And I think one big lesson for me from this is, you should have enjoyed the season more when it was happening. Um, you, you know, we were on this great run; we were winning every every week. Um, it was unbelievable at times. And while we celebrated those wins, there was always sort of a nervousness watching. And I think from previous title title runs, like you know, I mean, last season, getting to it, losing one game all season, getting to that final game, and uh, there was a mo. There was about ten minutes in the stadium against Wolves where. Liverpool were going to win the league because Manchester City were losing to Brighton and it was some of the most it was the most delirious I've ever seen at Anfield. Um obviously it didn't last and we got on to win the Champions League, which was great, but I think there was a sense of oh, just having such a great season and not still not winning the league.
1: It is might it ever gone. going to
2: happen? Yeah. Is it ever going to happen? And this season showed it is. It, uh, it, and I think we'll take that. Um I think and yeah without yeah, you I know I'm with two Manchester United fans here, but um the moment for me that kind of confirmed it was that game against Manchester United when um Salah scores in the last minute um, at Anfield. We've sort of been not quite clinging on, but Manchester United have come back into the game and uh just Salah you know, they had this corner, everyone was a little bit nervous and then suddenly within a few seconds the ball's in the back of the net and Salah's got his shirt off in front of the cop and I think by then we knew, yeah, that's, that's definitely it sorted.
1: You deserve it. Of course, Angus, if if Karen Brady at West Ham had her way, uh, there'd be no relegation threat and Liverpool wouldn't have a title yeah. to celebrate. So you wanted yeah. to call the whole thing off.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I dissociate myself from that. Uh, I was just going to pick up on Charles's point, though. I did see the guy, the jockey who won the 1,000 Guineas or the 2,000 Guineas, one or the other, I can't remember, uh, a week or two ago. Uh, they asked him afterwards how he felt, and he said, oh, it's really there's no atmosphere, it's really a bit depressing but he said actually in five years all the record books will show is that i won the guineas yeah so you know it's not as bad as it might seem Charles. um the um I, I, my, my feeling um uh, i mean was jim's point about empty stadiums and the difference that will make i think at home advantage rather i mean as i said you know jokingly west ham home advantage hasn't really been an advantage for them this season but um you know they're running is is quite as there's a lot of what you would could consider relegation battles there i just wonder if the whole no crowd thing will make a much bigger difference at the bottom of the table than at the top because if you're you've got you know i think like man city arsenal tomorrow which the you know, champions league okay but that's more about getting the job done it's hard to see people getting really excited about those games but down at the bottom if you if you think back to previous years you get those kind of dogfights at the end of the season where somebody just needs a point to stay up and, you know, you've got home advantage and pass and crowd roaring them on. Without any of that, it's really hard to imagine how those games are going to play out. I mean, West Ham have to go to Newcastle. And Newcastle, I guess, is safe. Newcastle away, if they had something to play for, is a pretty tough game if you're not, you know, you're not doing well yourself. But Newcastle away, when they've got no fans there and nothing to play for, is an altogether different proposition, so it's incredibly difficult to call, really. All right,
3: absolutely. I, I, one of the things I, I just wondered uh, uh, from uh, from Charles is there's a fair chance Liverpool are going to win it against Everton. Okay, so if, if City yeah. if City don't 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 beat Arsenal, there's a fair chance they could win against Everton. Do you really think no one's going to turn up outside the stadium?
2: <laughs> well, is, is, this has obviously been raised several times. I think. Fan groups, I mean, so the Spirits of Shankly fan group do a lot of work um, with the community um, and with uh, the club, and I think there will be a very, very strict kind of message going out from them. I wouldn't be surprised if, say, Klopp puts something out as well. He's... Um, Quite good at that, engaging with the fans And saying don't do this Um, He actually got in trouble in his first season When we got to the Europa League final um, In Basel Which is a tiny city, probably not really Suitable for a major European final Um, And he sort of said Yeah, even if you don't have a ticket, come along It'll be a great party And then three days later it was wheeled out Saying actually no, that's the wrong message (laughs) You need to to stay at home if you don't have a ticket Um, So I think there'll be Plenty of conditions on that front and the other thing I'd add is if you ever go to um, Anfield or Goodison they are a little bit out of the city centre um, obviously there are you know, houses around there but I think in terms of kind of you know, the way of Liverpool supporters who live actually within walking distance of the ground where you know the police can pick them up beforehand I think it would be quite hard and arguably not really worth a lot of people's time to sort of head up there not be able to see the game, and uh, you know, probably get get a big fine. So I'm I'm fairly confident that if there are, it won't be big crowds. Might be a few little crowds, but um, I think it should be under control.
1: Yeah, I was going to. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Klopp because he has he is such a tremendous force for good. We, you know, we talked about the footballers, uh, and Jim mentioned Gareth Southgate, but but Klopp really does seem like a man with a with a proper conscience on his on his in his head.
2: Completely, he's definitely. I mean, you see interviews with him, and he's definitely very well. He thinks out what he's saying. He's very well spoken in terms of what he picks his arguments on, and I think he's quite. He's always quite keen to say, you know, it's not just football, which is something that impressed me when all this again, this lockdown was starting. He didn't. He didn't. Liverpool have been quite sensible in not saying anything about the continuation they haven't sort of bemoaned the luck or they haven't said anything you know we should definitely haven't even come out and said yes we definitely need to finish the season even though that's obviously that been their position I think they've very much been trying to make sure make it clear that yes there are more important issues right now but football does matter to some people and I think it is worth pushing ahead when we can Stephen Gerrard,
3: I noticed that uh, Charles was uh, saying they should uh, construct a statue. Uh, statues,
2: I know, are fairly contentious. Yes, in in the Athletic Today. <laughs> uh,
3: do you think uh, Do you think there should be a Klopp statue at, at Anfield?
2: I I think it's a little bit too soon. I mean, they've only just put up a uh, Bob Paisley statue, and uh, and so I don't think there should be a rush to put up any kind yeah. of new statues at this point. Um, uh, I think it's better. I I've heard an argument before and I kind of agree with it that footballers you should wait at least until they retire before you kind of memorialise anything to do with managers or players. Um so yeah, I don't think there's any need to I mean, rush that. Um-
1: Alex Ferguson had to wait well, 13 titles to get a statue and a stand named after him. So, yeah, your boy hasn't won one yet. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And
2: I think I think Klopp would probably find it a little
1: bit embarrassing
2: yeah. to have one straight away. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think there'll be any
1: rush to do that. One, one for David Moyes at West Ham, uh, Angus. Yeah, They've got Bobby Moore statue, I think that's probably better. <laughs> Anything's better than the Michael Jackson one, which Grace <laughs> yeah, that. and is now that was, yeah. is now in the Museum of Football up in Manchester, should you ever <laughs> hop up to that fair city. Okay, I think on that note of statues, deserved and otherwise, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, thank you, Jim, for joining us. Uh, thank you, Angus and Charles, as well. And. Uh, we'll say goodbye to everybody and let's hope we have an enjoyable end to the football season. This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford.
0: Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short Briefings.